Good morning and welcome to Radio Ombudsman. This is Rob Behrens here uh, from close by uh, Westminster and my guest in uh, Newcastle is the very well-known uh, Dame Jackie Daniel. You're, you're a very welcome guest, Dame Jackie. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Jackie Daniel is a celebrated British healthcare administrator and senior leader in the NHS. She started her career as a nurse and has been a chief executive at, uh, I think, four uh, hospital trusts now, uh, starting off in Manchester, where all good things come from, and then uh, today moving to becoming the chief executive of Newcastle-upon-Tyne's uh, Foundation Trust. Uh, Dame Jackie is a polymath. She has a master's degree in quality assurance in healthcare and social care, and she's a qualified business and personal coach. We'll ask her something about that. And she was awarded a Dame Commander of the uh, Order of the British Empire in the New Year's Honours List of 2018. So we're lucky to have you. Uh, thank you very much. Welcome, Dame Jackie, after your uh, now uh, celebrated spin at 5.30 this morning. Uh, how was that? Oh, nice to be with you, Rob. It was, it was, well, it's, I can't pretend it's always comfortable because, of course, your heart rate's going up and you, you know, you, you kind of put yourself through the paces. But it's, it's a much needed start to every day, actually. All my working days, I start like that. So wherever, wherever possible. So it was good. It was good. And it always feels better to have gotten it out of the way. That, that's good. Now, uh, we begin these uh, interviews by asking people about where they come from and their backgrounds and the values that were instilled in them. Where, where, where were you born? So I was actually born, uh, you can hear from my accent that I'm a Yorkshire girl, um, but I was born in Haworth, which yeah. calls the home of the Brontes, and really lived in the, in the area around there um, all of my kind of childhood until until I left home. So I'm well and truly a Yorkshire girl. Yeah, and what sort of family did you come from? What kind of uh, values were were around? So my mum and dad, I think, I guess you would say it's a typical kind of working class family. So, you know, uh, no one had really been to university from, from the family or taken a degree before, before I did. Um, but I was hugely... Um, well supported by my mum, who was a, a personal assistant and administrator, my dad, who um, ran a garage. I guess the inspiration, I think, for much of what I've done came from my grandmother, who was a bit more of an entrepreneur, really. She ran her own women's fashion business and she did it with a lot of kind of flair. I remember, you know, she did fashion shows and she she was well known kind of in, in near Skipton was where she had a shop. And I guess, you know, I I looked to her for, I guess, pushing boundaries and pushing oneself and really looking at the possibilities of what we as kind of humans um, are capable of achieving. So although I got lots of support from my mum and dad, I think I think my grandmother was was really a lot of the driving inspiration behind Believing in, in, in myself, believing that I could go on and do whatever, you know, I, I thought was important. And thank goodness I kind of fell into the NHS early on. And really, ever since then, I've 
I've been there for almost 40 years and I've absolutely relished and loved really every minute of it. Okay, before we get into the NHS, uh, can I just relate your grandmother's influence with you being a coach? It seems to me that there may be a connection there that you, you know you want to get the best out of people and make sure they pursue the best they can to the limit. Would that would that be right? Absolutely, Rob. One of the things that I've been working on really for the last, I guess in fairness, it must be 10, 15, 20 years maybe, but is this um, programme which I've given a name to, which is about kind of flourishing and making sure that people can be the best they can possibly be um, in the work environment. And it, it absolutely did come from her inspiration um, around, you know, she'd come from kind of pretty mod- modest beginnings. You know, she travelled the world by the time she she departed and um, and she'd done some really, really wonderful things. You know, she spoke six languages fluently. Um, she was a really in- inspirational woman. What, so, what was her name? So it was Barbara. She had quite an unusual name. So it was Barbara Clutterbuck. Oh. Um, uh, which she loved because it, it, it kind of, you know, she it always made people sort of sit up. And it was a bit of an unusual name. Um, but, yeah, she she really did encourage, certainly me and her other, her other grandchildren and people around her, just to, um, to, to hold the belief and to keep striving. And, and I guess she was a lifelong learner, which I've, I've, I've certainly taken that on. Okay, um, tell us a bit about how you got into the NHS from from school. That's that's interesting. Yeah, so it was a bit of a, my last year in school was a bit of a car crash. Unfortunately, I was planning. In fact, I was planning to go into graphic design. Would you believe? But I flunked. I flunked um, all of my well, some of my O level grades. So I didn't get what I what I set out to achieve. So couldn't felt I couldn't well I couldn't go into sixth form, so I had to look for something else. I was yeah I was pretty pretty devastated. It was a bit of a, blur, a hard blow. No one was kind of expecting it, and I think I'd, if I'm honest with you, Rob, I fell into nursing. I, it was just something that a friend of mine was interested in and looking at, um, and she'd been to then a school of nursing and had an interview and learn a little bit more about what a career in nursing might mean. And I, I kind of followed Sue and it was magnetic. I remember I remember the sense of, whoa, okay, so I can train, I can learn all of this. Um, at that time I didn't I didn't think about taking on a degree. It wasn't a degree led course um, back then. I did that afterwards. But um yeah, I kind of I really didn't hesitate for a moment. Um and began began nurse training. And what what was that experience like? Because it's it's now some time ago, and things must have changed very dramatically. They certainly have. Um, they certainly have in all sorts of ways. Um, I think it was a pretty traditional, I suppose, apprenticeship. Where, um, where was it? Where where did it take place? It was in Leeds. Leeds. Um, uh, and it, yeah, it was pretty traditional. You know. Um, and I remember at the time, I think I sort of, you know, I was really interested in fashion. My hair, even then, it was, it was probably colourful. Um, and I remember being ticked off, you know, for 
So for that kind of thing, you know, you get yourself in line, you know, you don't wear earrings or or anything. Um, uh, it was pretty, pretty strict. Um, I didn't live in. Um, I chose to. I did leave home at that point and um, shared a flat um, with another trainee nurse. So it was a kind of, you know, entrance into both work life, but also adult life, um, like I've never really experienced. But you definitely felt part of something. It was you were taken care of. You were you felt really well supported. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the journey from being a nurse to becoming uh, the chief executive at Manchester Mental Health and Social Care Trust. That's an interesting trajectory. Actually, uh, I've probably been a chief executive. I've not counted, and I should have done. It's remiss of me, but probably seven organisations. Manchester Mental Health was not the first. The first was Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt, which is a specialist orthopaedic trust on on the boundaries of England and Wales. And maybe more about that later, but I took that job thinking it was a, a doable job, a small specialist trust. My goodness me. It was anything but, but, but yeah, so I practiced clinically and I, I kind of rose through the ranks and was a ward sister on a surgical ward. I think, yeah, almost certainly in, in my mid twenties, which, which was kind of going some even, even then. And I, at the same time, I studied for a bachelor of science in nursing because I felt that was important. I was the only nurse in the trust studying for that level of qualification at the time and I was really lucky that I got sponsorship and I went on a Thursday afternoon and into the evening um, every single week for four years to to get that to try and acquire that knowledge and it was pretty frowned upon actually I remember the surgeon on the ward where I worked saying but you're a nurse why on earth do you want to go on and you know take a degree so it was very different times but it was Interesting because I certainly felt the responsibility of caring for a ward. It was a 30-bedded ward. It was general surgery in those days, so it did everything from, you know, fairly routine hernias and what have you to wholesale kind of end-to-end gastric surgery. So a real, real learning curve. But I remember feeling the weight of caring for 30 patients and their families but also the enormous responsibility of trying to develop and grow and support a whole team of, yeah. of people. But it was, I still say it now, it was, it was one of the most re- rewarding times, absolutely, looking back. It was, a, it was the hardest, I think, of all the periods I've worked in. You know, that front line, front facing, leadership roles are really tough, even, even then, and they're tougher now than the, I think they were then. When I go into hospitals and, and go on to wards, you can tell the leadership of the ward by the state that it's in and the morale of the people there. And it varies quite considerably depending on the skills of, of the leaders on the ward. So, I mean, it is obviously a critical role to play. Do you know, Rob, I think you're absolutely right. I think in terms of the leadership role that I now have, I think there's those linchpins in terms of connectors to improvement and culture and quality are mission critical. And I remember thinking, how can it be that the, the ward that I'm leading, I think very, very high standards. I mean, almost, you know, really hard taskmaster. I must, I, God knows what I was like to work with then. But I remember thinking, you know, the care and on the 
surgical ward opposite in the corridor there, I know is, is not very good. And so that really did lead to the next step in terms of, I remember thinking, well, how do I influence that? What, where, what position can I stand in to try and influence more of that? And I didn't go through the traditional kind of matron route then. I, I, I decided uh, for different reasons to go into more of a general management role where I oversaw a whole, you know, directorate as it, as it was then um, and tried to influence things in a different way. Well, um, was there a gender bias in those days? Was it unusual for a woman to have that, that seniority? It, it certainly was in, obviously, in general management, in, in, in nursing, not so. In fact, it was probably the other way. That, you know, there were probably fewer male leaders then, um, but certainly in general management. Um, and I remember feeling still then there was certainly fewer nurses. that There was a lot of more career entry managers um, than there were clinicians going into that kind of managerial role. Yeah. Okay. So you've done a lot of big jobs as chief executive, none more challenging, I suspect, than going into Morecambe Bay. We know the story of Morecambe Bay from Bill Kirkup's brilliant report and James Titcombe's equally brilliant book, but your perspective must be uh, similar but different to theirs because you you had to handle the rescue operation. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, sure, Rob. I, I, certainly. It, it definitely was. Uh, I mean, I talked about the war sister role. Um, it was, the challenges at Morecambe Bay were on a, at a different level. And a lot of people still ask me, why on earth did you do it? Because, of course, I knew the risk. It was, you know, the whole board had been removed. Um, it was in the extreme of special measures, in a really difficult place to operate in. You know, the geography was difficult. Um, and a lot of people asked me why I did it. And I, I think the only, and it's not a, trying to be a clever answer, but I suppose because I could and because I felt passionate about the people that were living in that area and felt they deserved better, frankly. So I decided that I'd really put my metal to the test and everything that I'd learned up until that point and, and have a go. And, I mean, I guess the first job was listening to really, really immersing myself in what on earth had, had gone on before. Um, as I say, the leadership team had been cleared out of yeah. bar one or two, which subsequently went quite quickly after I joined. But the main job, really, I remember spending, it was probably a couple of months just listening and talking and hearing people tell their stories about what what had happened, you know, that, that felt to me to be the most immediate and important job. Yeah, and how, how did you deal with the, the very clear differences of views from the different professions within healthcare? So you get from the Kirkup report and from Titcom as well, a clear breakdown of trust between nurses, midwives and doctors uh, who began to see each other as the enemy almost in a, in a frightening way. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it? You know, trying to, you know, you don't come to those conclusions lightly or quickly. You know, it really did take some time. I remember talking with people who'd been on these CQC inspection teams, people who had been, you know, important partners like the commissioners, 
um, Health Watch, you know, some of the voluntary sector um, leaders to just try and get as, as much of a rounded view as I could. But it's really interesting, isn't it? So, you know, you try all the time, the kind of facts and figures. But I think listening to the stories and really connecting with how does this feel? How does, it, how does this sound and how does it feel? Because one of the big lessons, I think, is generally if it feels wrong, it generally is wrong. Yeah. And, and, and I think you do pick up when you talked about, you know, the instinct that you get when you walk onto a ward as a ward sister about does this feel a safe environment and a positive and, you know, is just is a culture right you get the same feeling or at least I do as a a CEO when you walk around and listen and talk to people and try and piece together this pretty it was a pretty complex picture going back years and years and years probably you know decades in truth yeah and how I mean you're obviously a very sensitive but also strong individual but there must have been a lot of conflict in your leadership through that time how did you survive that challenge? Yeah, there, there definitely was. And I was I was really conscious that we had the world's press. And I obviously it wasn't the world's press, but it was the northern press and probably quite a lot of national press with their cameras, their lenses and their microphones pressed up against every, every surface of this organisation. So there were times when I really did need to push back and say, you know, I'm not ready to talk about this yet. You know, I'm still in listening mode or, you know, we were inundated from, in, in quotes, people that wanted to help, but that actually were, you know, part of, part of what I needed to do initially was create some stability, just create a it was almost like putting the defibrillator paddles on and trying to get some sense of sinus rhythm back and some sort of order so that I could start to piece the picture together for myself because I'm the kind of leader that if a bit of the jigsaw's not fitting or several bits as it was then, yeah, I find it really difficult to kind of settle until I've got that. So I suppose just pursuing, 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 asking people for a bit of space where I needed it, and that was quite difficult because, you know, I think James will tell you, it was it was it was a little while before he and I really kind of connected properly and started having conversations, which then went on for several years. You know, this was quite a slow burn in terms of um, a process. Yeah, and presumably, when you're, I know, when you're in that kind of position, you need a support network in order to get through it. Did you did you have access to that? If I'm honest with you, Rob, uh, not enough. And I remember saying that. I remember, you know, I'd arrived. I got a lot initially because I was kind of put put in place. And as I say, there wasn't really a team. So as I began to assemble the team, I think that's where I drew quite a lot of support from. But if I, you know, and I built support over time. I think building trust and building new relationships in a new geography does take time. So if I'm if I'm honest with you, I don't think I had enough in the early days. I've always been the kind of person though that has had, and I still do now, actually, usually more than one coach, a mentor. And I looked for quite a different set of support during that early time. So I did, you know, get some psychological support because there were times when it when I felt really afraid. Yeah. Uh, it was it was it was pretty traumatic for everybody really involved. So 
thankfully I knew to ask for help when I needed it from different sources but there wasn't enough you know from anywhere in the NHS at the time I think it is difficult to know how to put that in place I think and I think it's a very personal thing I think you've got to really know yourself yeah as a leader to know just what ingredients work for you there was plenty of people that were trying to help actually not much of that was helpful when I reflect back I think there's a kind of assumption particularly with powerful leaders that they can do it without needing the support and of course that's the reverse of the case because leaders like that are putting themselves in very difficult situations but leaving the personalities aside one of the things I hear even now is that all these years on, the Kirkup recommendations still haven't been fully implemented and we're, we're replaying some of the same stories that happened in Morecambe Bay. What would you say about that? Yeah, I think this is never done. So I've been, I've connected through with other leaders in different, particularly maternity units over, over the last few years and tried to give them a little bit of structure around how I approach things and the kind of things that, you know, the mistakes I felt I'd made, um, the things that were really, really important and instrumental. I think we've got a lot more to do. I, I think it is really, really difficult. You've got to completely immerse yourself. And I don't mean just as a chief executive, but the leadership team, the leadership, the broader leadership structure um, in an organisation have got to embrace these big issues, even if it's, a, for example, a, a team looking out and trying to do elective care, it is if you've got a pocket and problems in a part of the organisation, it, it can become pretty systemic. But you, you have got to deeply immerse yourself in both the actions that are needed, but in the, in the acknowledgement that something here has gone very badly wrong. And... It's, it's unlikely that you're going to have a quick fix that you can, you know, we have absolutely masses of um, things like PMO structure at Morecambe Bay. We have the massive, huge, you know, action plans and a lot of infrastructure in terms of governance. But it takes a lot more than that. It, it, it's actually a way of thinking and being about the whole organisation. And you almost need the whole organisation and the system that's supporting it to acknowledge what needs to be done there, because it's often very deep, yeah. quite systemic. Okay, so from that situation, today you find yourself in a very different situation, leading one of the best performing trusts in CQC's National Inpatient Survey. And I've been to have a look, and it's hugely impressive, and we can talk a bit about that. But you say about what you're doing, it's healthcare at its best with people at our heart. You know, what, what is the essence of what you're doing in Newcastle that makes the difference? I hope it's absolutely focusing on the patient experience and quality, but connecting, people use this word engaging, particularly with staff and patients. I think it takes more than that. I think you've got to develop what I call relational fabric. It's got to feel a deeper connection with this deal with both the staff, who are, of course, absolutely the most valuable asset you have at your fingertips on any day of the week, but also with patients and families in the population. You know, I'm a public servant. And what I always say is I'm going to do my level best to lead 
your organisation, because this is your organisation and not mine, to the best possible standards I can. And I've just said all of that, you know, in the space of two or three minutes, but actually making that feel and be true every day. And, you know, we've got 15,000 plus staff. You know, one of the things I always pondered about is how do you do it at scale? And you can only do it by developing connections, pretty deep connections, you know, with the people right on the outer branches of this wonderful kind of root system of leadership, which really is not about hierarchy or rank. It's about a belief that we're here to serve. How much say does a person in your position have about the leadership positions working with you? Have you had to change that much in order to get the kind of relationship that you want? Yeah, I think it's always, I mean, the leadership, the the kind of flourish framework is built of three areas. The, the, The front bit or domain number one is around leadership. And if you've not got alignment in cultural terms or in philosophy and um, values, it it means nothing. So there were changes that were needed. And I think you've got to be tough on the issues, much, much easier on people. But not one of the things I've learned is not to shy away from making changes where, where they're needed. Yeah, Okay. As if that's not enough. I mean, it's a very big operation. How have you been affected by the COVID pandemic? Gosh, like everywhere else, I guess, Rob. Um, I'm I've been doing regular kind of check-ins, both virtually and uh, you know socially distanced with teams um, all the way through, and it, it's been quite distressing, um, but really important, I think, to recognise what some of those teams have been through. It's been really hard, you know, at the peak. Our intensive care units would treble the size to deal with what we, there's an anchor organisation in the northeast and supporting Cumbria as well. We tripled our size and and it was it was absolutely full on. And of course, since then, we, we and I think it's a mistake to just think the peak has come and gone. You know, the, the sense of this is still very much with people. It's it's about, and it's also about the lives they're living, their family members, you know, which is still incredibly changed. Mm. So I think I've been trying to build in positive support wherever. Um, we've done lots on that. We've done lots about helping people with their psychological well-being, with their physical well-being. We've had to rethink about how staff get rest and restoration, putting in new facilities and opening up spaces so they can do that. But I think the biggest mistake we can really make is just to pretend we're we're tough, we've toughed this out and we'll keep toughing it out because it's really, really hard. Mm. Uh, and it continues, of course. Um, at the moment, the northeast is uh, levels are increasing. They're pretty moderate at the moment. So hopefully the, the actions that we're taking will um, mean that we can comfortably deal with it. Uh, but this isn't a moment to gamble with people's welfare and well-being. No, thank you. Of course, you don't have the option of remote working because, like like we at the Ombudsman Office do, we can you know work from home, or most people can, and that makes a big difference. But you don't have that option, no. and you're where the action is. So we we salute that. I'm coming towards the end, but there's some big things I still want to ask you about. We've uh, consulted about our complaint standards framework in the last six months. We've had an amazing response from across the NHS 
from people saying this is an important idea whose time has come, in the sense that complaints have a critical role in leadership and in helping change the culture of an organisation. We, we featured your innovations in Newcastle in our, in our consultation document, but how important is it to have a proactive and imaginative approach to complaints handling in your experience? I think it sits at the centre of so much, Rob. Um, I don't think we can underestimate it. Um, it, it. It really does. I mean, I loved, um, for what it's worth, the, the kind of tone in terms of the, the approach that you, you've consulted on now and, you know, it, it is out there. Um, so that, you know, emphasis on things like on culture, you know, and open, open culture on, a, on an improving and a culture which is all about learning, which tries to get people into the discovery mindset rather than the defensive mindset, which is so dangerous in healthcare sector and was quite a lot about the experiences at Morecambe Bay. Um, you know, trying to give fair and account accountable decisions, just being very, very transparent, even when, you know, things have not gone well. And, and that's hard for everybody. But so I think the tone and the how it sits in terms of it's central to organisational culture and to patient safety. Um, and we've got to keep building on the important place we're at now through that. And chief execs and clinicians, there's lots that we can do to support the main pillars and structure of the complaint standards framework as it sits now. The, the, as I say, the response has been very positive, apart from a few backwoodsmen who have uh, wheeled out the phrase, the burden on the NHS that we're imposing by, by proposing this. I mean, help me with this idea that the complaint standards framework is a burden on, on trusts and, and GPs and so on. Oh, my goodness me. Well, if, if people could see me, and of course they can't because it's a podcast, I am unashamedly shaking my head and putting my hands in my head. Um, I think therein lies the problem that, you know, this is somehow viewed as a side, a side issue. This is the job, you know, providing care to the standard and to the satisfaction of the people we're here to serve. And when it, when it doesn't happen, you know, we have lifelong relationships with patients and families. You know, often if we get things wrong, it affects a whole generation. It's, yes. it's not just one individual at all. But the opportunities to, you know, if you can, if you can try and pivot um, this, this burden, as, as you've put out there, in terms of a, an opportunity and a potential for improvement. And even, you know, I, I say 0.1% improvement is worth chasing in healthcare and in our business, in any business, actually. But what isn't to be positive and excited about? And, you know, it, certainly in my organisation, clinicians do, you know, do get quite excited about the opportunity for improvement. And I think, I think that's really important. So I know I sound pretty evangelical there, but we cannot be tolerant of, you know, the view that this is a burden. It is too important. I'm going to quote you on that. So thank you very much. Look, we could go on talking forever. I've got three last questions for you. Tell us a bit about the green NHS, because you've made the running on this 
more than anyone that I know of, and it's unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners. Yeah. So, there, you know, there isn't, there isn't sustainable anything without a sustainable planet. But I, I've been blessed because I entered an organisation who had a strong sustainability team led by a wonderful guy called James Dixon. I've been working on this for years. So when I lifted the lid and looked at it, looked at what we were doing around waste, around plastics, around um, and, and very clinically driven around things like anaesthetic gases, for example, and seeing the impact that we were able to have on on you know carbon reduction, um, I was absolutely astounded. But what was more interesting was that this is an agenda that my staff, our staff, care passionately about. Yeah. This gets people, so building that relational fabric, identifying with things that matter to people is, is really key. Um, so it's not something I have to lead particularly because you know what, people, it matters to, to our staff. It matters to our communities. So it's a relatively, uh, not easy, but it's a relatively easy sell. And, you know, so I'm trying to support other chief execs who say, well, we haven't really got time to, to think about this. Oh, my God, you need to because we're running out of time, seriously. Uh, we can see that not just with the impact it's having on health changes in, in climate, but, you know, fires, flooding, goodness knows, you know, natural these, these catastrophes. So um, I'm really pleased I was asked to participate in the Net Zero, NHS Net Zero panel, expert panel. And we've got some wonderful material that's just been published that can support organisations of any size and scale to do those things. And I would say to chief executives, go for it. You will find that your staff are passionate about this. They can do something about this every day when they come into work and they're very happy to do it. Thank you. In your career, uh, what has been the thing you're most proud of having done? So it has to sit back at, during my time at Morecambe Bay. And it was a really tough conversation that I, I, I facilitated between, um, I'm sure James will mind me, he's, he's talked about this quite publicly, but between him and, and I guess his family and a particular midwife. And all I will say is it was, it was the toughest few hours probably in my career, it was a bit of a risk, but it's probably brought the most benefit for all of the people that participated in it. So I think sometimes taking those, and there might be momentary things, and that was just a few hours, but it, I hope it had, well, it did have considerable reach and it had long-standing learning for the organisation. Thank you. Look, thank you for being so frank and interesting. We, we have a whole series of listeners across the world and we have a lot of young colleagues uh, in the office in Manchester who, who listen to this programme, who are new into being Ombuds officers. What advice would you give to them in the light of your experience in the health service over this time? I would say hold the belief, you know, again, they're doing a great job, Rob. They're really making a fantastic contribution. There are so many people that are not visible, you know, in terms of that that contribution. So, and I think never stop believing that you can improve 
what we're delivering for patients. Never stop believing that your individual contribution can literally change a moment in time, can change practice for the long term, can change somebody's experience, which can be life changing. You, you know, we have the abilities as, as humans to make that amount of difference. So and always look out there. The other thing I've always done is look out there and try and connect with and meet, you know, um, with those people that you can see that the guiding lights out there and ask for what you need because generally I found that it increases your chances of getting it. Okay, that's wise and warm and interesting. Dame Jackie Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we're really grateful. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, I'm grateful for that. Um, it's been a pleasure and um, have a good day. This is Rob Barron signing off. Radio Ombudsman with the news that one of our soon-to-be guests is uh, Nadine Doris, the Minister of Health, which will be a very interesting uh, discussion exchange uh, before the end of the year. Have a good and safe day and all the best. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.